This is Archive Atlanta, episode 106, Black Women in Convict Leasing. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're talking about a dark part of Atlanta's story, convict leasing. I covered this history first in episode 35, which was about Chattahoochee Brick, but recently I had the privilege to work on research and a tour for Dr. Johnson at Spelman College around the topic of Black women and forced labor. I spent hours in the newspapers learning these stories about these remarkable women, these strong women, but also the horrors and the tragedies of their lives. At the end, I found a book called Chained in Silence, which I will put a link in the show notes for everyone. Everybody should read it. And But all of this led me to this episode, which was a small glimpse into the convict lease system for Black women specifically. Some of their names, some of their stories, tales of childbirth, death, escape, and then what's left in Atlanta that connects us to them. If convict leasing is not familiar to you, I recommend starting with Reading Slavery by Another Name, which I will also link in the show notes. There's also tons of documentaries and stuff. I'm going to try to put as much resources in the show notes for you guys to check out. Prior to 1865, all Southern convicts were white because Black men and women were punished privately by their owners. Georgia was one of the first Southern states to build a penitentiary. It was requested by the legislator in 1803. It wasn't approved until 1812 and it was finally finished in 1816. In Milledgeville, it would take its first white prisoner in March of 1817. It operated until 1861, which marks the start of the American Civil War. Now, during this time, the penitentiary was used as an armory, and the prisoners were forced to make weapons for the Confederate armies. As the Union forces approached, the governor of Georgia had this great idea. He released all of the prisoners, and he promised them that if they stayed to fight for the Confederacy... I don't know that they would be rewarded in some way. I'm sure you can imagine how well that went, which was definitely not in the governor's favor. The men were gone within weeks. The penitentiary building was destroyed by fire and never rebuilt to its original form, mainly because of lack of funds. So after the end of slavery, Georgia has 400,000 free people, 80% of which lived in rural counties. And here is where we start to see the introduction of Black Codes. In October of 1865, Georgia became the fifth state to create their Black Codes, set out to define the legal status of people with Black skin. It was, spoiler alert, heavily based on the Slave Code. And the biggest difference was just punishment. So an 1859 vagrancy law was punishable by enslavement, and the 1865 vagrancy law was punishable by imprisonment. And vagrancy at that time was defined as, quote, all persons wandering or strolling about in idleness who are unable to work, and who have no property to support them, end quote. Which, of course, was the majority of Black people that had just been released from the slave system with no property or monetary reparations. Even though Black codes were prohibited by the federal government in 1868, they still lingered. I tell you all of this so you can understand the rise in incarceration rates for Black men and women in Georgia in the post-war period. Faced with these rising stats, without an adequate state prison to house them, the brilliant solution was to opt into the convict leasing system. And the system goes into effect in May of 1866, when 100 convicts were leased to William Fort of Rome, Georgia, for the construction of the Georgia and Alabama Railroad. Thirteen black women were put to work in what was called the cuts, where they graded, shoveled dirt, and pushed cars. 
One of them, Mary Brooks, was only 16 years old. Over the next eight years, 32 women had taken part in the construction of the Macon and Augusta, the Brunswick and Albany, and the airline railroads. In an effort to formalize the system, the governor of Georgia authorized the General Assembly to do 25-year bids for all of the state convicts. So three bids are accepted, totals like half a million dollars, and then the winners are organized into penitentiary companies one, two, and three. Company one was the Dade Coal Mines, where 300 men were sent, uh, no women, and the remaining prisoners were split between companies two and three. Now, while women only made up 3% of convicts, black women made up 98% of the female prison population. Female prisoners had always been an issue for Georgia legislators. Um, while no white Georgians blinked an eye at the sight of a black man involved in hard or forced labor, there was concern over public opinion about black women being seen in public doing the same. So it was never a question about whether they should be in the system. It was more of an issue of like, where can we put these women far away enough out of sight that nobody's bothered by it? The Fulton County Women's Camp was located at the rear of the almshouse property. So if you haven't listened to episode 78, it's all about the Fulton County almshouse, um, how it worked, where it was, all of that stuff. But today we do not think of Buckhead as being OTP, but that's very much what it was in the 1860s. By 1884, a new almshouse was being built and the work was being done by 18 female convicts and five men. On the site were two brick molding machines. And so this small crew produced 400,000 bricks that constructed the new poorhouse. Ironically, it was not for them. It was instead for the white paupers only. The black paupers were then moved into the shoddy former white housing, and the convicts slept in tents or temporary structures in the back. In order to be self-sustaining, which was like the one requirement from the county and the city of Atlanta officials, the almshouse superintendent had female convicts farm and cultivate hundreds and thousands of bushels of corn, potatoes, peas, onions. They also raised chicken, hogs, and cows, among many other farm animals. The modern version of Piedmont Road was originally called Plasters Bridge Road, and so it was separated from the city proper because you had to cross Peachtree Creek, which was not possible without a bridge. Um, it was described in the 1890s as, quote, long and devious route, curving about the hills and forming quite an irregular and winding approach, end quote. The only way to cross Peachtree Creek was a small iron bridge, no longer standing, but it's today the site um, where the Rollins warehouse is. There's also some apartments there. In December of 1896, Maddie Ellis was on Pryor Street in downtown Atlanta, outside the home of C.C. Blackburn. Allegedly, she asks him to enter the home for some matches. He instructs her to go in, get them on the table. Apparently on the table, there was a purse with $200 that they said Maddie stole. At this point, she was in Chattanooga where she was, quote, living in high style, had entree to the best of colored society, and was, in short, a bird of bright plumage, end quote. So we don't know what happened, right? But the fact that a black woman is living in some kind of glamorous way was very upsetting to white society. Police are sent for her. She's brought back to Atlanta. She's arrested, and she's assigned a $300 bond, which is impossible for her to pay. In lieu, she is sent to work off her sentence at the county poorhouse for 10 months. After two months of labor, she escapes at sundown. 
Fulton County's pack of hounds are sent out, along with guards on horses carrying loaded shotguns. Maddie is running for her life down Plasters Bridge Road, or today Piedmont Road, when she reaches the bridge. With the dogs and the guards right behind her, she jumps. It's pouring rain, the waters of Peachtree Creek are at their highest, and the guards just stop and watch her struggle. They don't think she's going to survive. All of a sudden, though, she pushed through and she starts swimming. And so the guards, they're threatening and they're yelling out and they tell her she's going to shoot. And she turns back and she says one thing. She goes, shoot. Temporarily out of sight, she sneaks up onto the shore. She runs through the woods. She finds a barn to hide into. But sadly, the pack of dogs find her just hours later. She was arrested again, returned to camp, shackled and heavily guarded for the rest of her sentence. Just a few miles west on the banks of the Chattahoochee River, Ella Gamble worked off her sentence. Ella was from Hamilton County, just north of Columbus. She was 21, pregnant, and working as a domestic worker when her employer died. Even with the circumstantial evidence, it only took the jury two hours to find her guilty, and she was sent to Chattahoochee Brick. Assigned to heavy work, her baby was born at this prison camp. By the time she had been moved to the Maddox camp, which I will talk about shortly, she had given birth six times. Between 1884 and 1886, convict leasing camps were a scourge of disease. Inmates were dying from consumption, which is tuberculosis, uh, pneumonia, the flu. The structures they slept in were leaking and wet. People were dying of curable things like nerve pain and constipation. There were 15 instances of childbirth at Chattahoochee Brick alone. Five of these six women who gave birth between 1886 and 1888, were afflicted with fallen uteruses, which is a term for like when your muscles just can't support what's going on in there, which is a sign of not proper prenatal care. Even new mothers were still forced to work 12 and 14 hour days, leaving their babies to cry for milk all day long. In one camp, there's a story of a mother that is shot to death for refusing to work while she was holding her baby in her arms. With Ella at Chattahoochee Brick were Kate Clark, Susan Hill, Emma Clark, Molly White, Minnie Ward, Layla Burgress, and Nora Daniel. In 1889, reporters visited the site, so we have a white man's glimpse into what their days were like. And he says the bell rings at 4 a.m., the prisoners rise, they get dressed. When day breaks, they begin their work until a short break at noon. In the summer, they might have one or two hours for dinner and then back to work until the sun sets. The men sleep separately, black men sleep in the back of the barracks, white in the front, and all of them are chained together through their feet while sleeping. There were 22 women at the camp that year, and when reporters visited the female quarters, they met two young mothers with days-old infants, one of them Molly Farmer. Molly was serving a sentence for infanticide that occurred two years prior. So the story is that her neighbor found her sick in bed and discovered her newborn baby dead under the blanket, allegedly with bruises. Molly denies this, you know, denies all the charges. Her first trial ends in a mistrial, but the second time she was found guilty. But keep in mind, in 1886, we know zero about postpartum psychosis. We know zero about SIDS. We know zero about any psychological ailment or disease. We do not know what happened. 
You can imagine, though, public outrage when this article is published. Again, even in the time of Jim Crow and blatant white supremacy, there is still outcry over knowing that these atrocities are happening to women and children. For the Georgia legislator, the issue of what to do with female convicts was a really serious conundrum. Because while they're typically not murderers or hardened criminals, they were causing more trouble than men. And the quotes from officials at this time are terrible, but they say, you know, quote, when placed in close confinement in restricted quarters of the camp, they become idiotic or insane, principally from a mere lack of something to do. On the other hand, when they have been with men, there is an unaccountable and irrepressible birth rate, not bargained for by the state or the leases, and generally embarrassing, end quote. Basically, the state needed a new plan. Their quote-unquote solution was a broom factory. Not only was it considered suitable women's work, but it could be self-sustaining and make money. Penitentiary company number two and three would become the stockholders in the broom factory, and they would spend $10,000 to build a structure on land they already owned along the river. In 1890, Bolton Broom, or Camp Bolton as it was often called, opened with 35 women sent from neighbor Chattahoochee Brick. Within months, all of the women in the system were making brooms. I have tried so very hard to figure out exactly where Bolton Broom was located. It's difficult because it was only open for a short time, and because it was outside of the city limits, it's not on any maps. But it was described as being on the banks of the Chattahoochee, um, very close to Chattahoochee Brick, near Bolton, near the Riverline Trolley. So my unprofessional guesstimation puts that at the site of what is today the Argos Complex, right next to the former landfill that's off Paul Avenue. For two years, the women at Bolton Broom labored under the watchful eyes of an overseer, and on Sundays they were visited by Reverend Frank Johnson, a formerly enslaved man who became prison apostle and would travel to both male and female camps across Atlanta. At the end of the first year, the Reverend actually establishes a Sunday school at the camp, funded solely by donations, and it has two teachers. And guards say that the women were better behaved after religious revival, and instead of cursing and blasphemy, you hear hymns and pious conversations while they work. One of those women working was Nora Lay. Nora was 17 years old. She was described as mulatto and half-breed Chinese. Previously, she was a servant for the Galtney family of Rome, Georgia. So when the home burned, uh, Nora left for Chattanooga the next day. Um, to everybody involved, this must have meant she was guilty. So she was captured in Chattanooga, sentenced, and forced to confess. She's sentenced to 99 years. And she begins her journey at Bolton Broom. But Nora sounds like a spitfire. Um, she's 17. She escapes the camp by climbing a 14-foot-high fence. They finally find her in Cartersville. They return her to Bolton, and she escapes again. And she's found in Marietta and returned again. And Nora actually travels through almost all of the camps in the history of George's convict lease system. And I am going to talk about her in a second. For the owners of Bolton Broom, though, the business was not as profitable as they hoped. In the first year, they made $2,600, but only $1,900 in the second. And some accounts that I read say that broom making was a skilled labor, something that was typically done by artisans. So these women were never properly trained. 
I'm sure they also could not care less about making a broom. And there was not an ability to make quality brooms that people are going to pay for. So once again, there's this huge debate in the legislature, like, what are we going to do with these female convicts? In August of 1893, Colonel W.H. Maddox suggests an idea. But before I tell you his idea, let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Maddox. His father was a planter who in 1856 gifted his son with 23 enslaved people. So even though we're talking about 1893, 28 years after the supposed abolishment of slavery, Maddox lives on 5,000 acres in northeast Georgia. And he says, let me take these 61 women and put them to work on my mother effing plantation. He didn't he didn't say that, but that's what it was. This was one of like this just aggravated me so much to read. I mean, he was a plantation owner prior to the war, and now he's essentially recreating a plantation 28 years after the war. We have some idea of their daily life. There was, again, reporters that traveled out here to this property. Um, They said that at 3.30 a.m., the bell would ring. Your work started at 4 a.m. If you did not immediately rise and bathe, you were punished with two to three lashes. All of the women wear striped dresses, and they're all supervised by an overseer. They get a two and a half hour lunch break, which Maddox is quoted verbatim saying that he hates to do it that long, but the mules need rest. Nora Lay is there, and she actually attempted another escape from this camp, jumping from a moving train as she was being sent there, but she was returned. Back in Atlanta in 1897, Commissioner Byrd is appointed by the governor to investigate the condition of the county's convict camps. Out of 25 camps in the entire state of Georgia, four are in Fulton and one is in DeKalb. In all 25 camps, there are 75 black women, and in 24 chain gangs, there are 20. So his report says convicts are naked, they're hungry, they're dirty, they're cold, they're beaten, they're injured, they have broken limbs, they are being tortured. And this really begins to signal the end of public support for convict leasing, but we're not quite there yet. At the turn of the century, the almshouse property had 25 black women at the convict camp, the youngest being 16 years old. If white women were sent to the camp, they were allowed to sleep in the almshouse with the paupers. And it's a big if. Uh, The way it worked is white women arrested in Atlanta were mainly sent to the jail until things got figured out, while black women were immediately sent to the prison farm for hard labor. In 1905, the county sells their land at Peachtree and Piedmont, and they buy a thousand acres on what is today Chastain Park. So convicts are forced to clear this land, and they also build the new white and black pauper buildings. And today, those buildings are the Galloway School and the Chastain Art Center. It's in the back of the art center, no longer standing. That would have been the caretaker's house and where the housing for the female convicts was. And these women were responsible for farming all of the land today that is covered by baseball fields um, and golf fields or golf holes or whatever. Um, Some worked in the kitchen and some took care of patients. In 1906 alone, there were 40 black women there serving sentences. So two years later, in 1908, the Georgia General Assembly passed the law abolishing the practice of convict leasing. On April 1st, 1909, the convict lease system ends in Fulton County. 
We then move on to the chain gang period, which is a whole other episode that I hope to have one day. The almshouse did continue to house convicts and operate as a prison camp, and the women there ran the daily operations of that facility all the way until 1959. So there you have it, the story of black women in the convict lease system. The site of Chattahoochee Brick has been in the news recently as Norfolk Southern is um, trying to develop it. The neighbors are fighting it. There's a group that has formed to fight it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes because I'm not going to do their whole story justice, but I highly encourage you to check that out. As I said earlier, the site of the two almshouses is still around. Today, one is the school, one is the art center. Um, the site of the original almshouse at the corner of Piedmont and Peachtree is where Tower Place is, where the Chick-fil-A is on the bottom. The bridge that Maddie jumped from is no longer standing, but it's been replaced with a bridge that you may be driving your car over every day. So the next time you are traveling up on Piedmont and you cross the creek, it's a story for you to think about. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or review. You can also visit patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta to support the podcast and you get little bonus mini episodes for doing so. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.